Oh, okay. Uh, and th- thank you for having me, first of all. And yeah. um, my name my name is Yulia Anderson, and uh, I'm originally from Moscow, Russia, but uh, I came to the States back in um, 1994. And um, I always been attracted to dogs, even as a small child. My mom used to complain that I wanted to bring every possible stray dog in the apartment. Um, and um, the the first time I saw my breed, the caribou terrier, when I was about seven years old, and I um, I looked at um, I remember it was a little dog book, and there was not a breed I ever heard of before. And actually, by the age of seven, I already knew quite a few breeds because I was interested in dogs. And so I saw a picture of a caribou, and I pointed to my mom and I said, "That's that's my breed." <laughs> Um, so I think the first time I actually saw a dog and, uh, you know, alive in, um, there was a big dog show in Moscow and, uh, I was about 14 and that's when I saw them. And, um, I, at, when I was 16, I got the first one, I bought the puppy. Mm-hmm. And so that was my breed since, ever since, um, I, when I, I had to leave my old dog in Moscow when I immigrated. And um, I was uh, dogless for a few years here while, you know, we were established and then, then I had my daughter. So the first time I, I, I got a puppy in the States was in 1999. And I wasn't planning on doing any, I mean, I just wanted a dog at that point. So I was, she was sold to me on limited registration. And, uh, but then probably when she was a year old, uh, there was a, uh, dog match basically on my backyard. And I've never shown, I didn't show my dog in Moscow. I used to train more like performance dog, mm-hmm. but they never actually been involved in any kind of dog show. So that was interesting. And so, you know, I groomed her as fast as I could. <laughs> and took her to the dog match and we won terrier group. Wow. Uh, I don't I don't know how, but anyway we did win and um that's it. I could I was like I was totally hooked from that day. So I called my breeder and she changed the limited registration to a normal one and so I was able to show and that's how I started showing here in the States. Um and um, you know, breeding and um doing all this, uh, you know, uh, the, the dogs, I was, for a while, I was very interested more in showing mm-hmm. rather than performance. And uh, uh, for a few years, I've been more involved in showing than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and I, I don't show that often. I mean, I go to the specialties for the most part, especially now, if I do, it's mostly specialties. I... Um, but at some point I tried to do rally. I think the rally was the first I started here. And, um, that's a very fun sport, I think. And I did well, my dog did well in it. And, um, from that point on, I got more involved in the, in the performance, not just dog showing. So I'm trying to, uh, my best to breed the dogs who are not just, you know, pretty to look at and functional, mm-hmm. um, but they also smart enough to do any task you want them. Because Kitty Blue is um, originally is um, 
kind of all-around farm dog. Mm-hmm. So they supposed to do, you know, herding and uh, mousing and uh, be a guard dog. And so variety of things they're supposed to perform. And it's very nice to see when the dog, you know, you can get the dog to its full potential, not just physically, but mentally as well. Right. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there is, there's no real known region. Um, there are quite there are a couple of species basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an Irish dog, obviously, but it's not. I don't think there's any pinpoint of where it started. Uh, there's a beautiful legend about it. Uh, the dog um, uh, was uh, escaped some kind of the, the, the sheep wreckage and. Um, so we swam to the shore and uh, from Russian ship, some sort, but that's nobody can you know say for sure. But it was it's bred in in, I, in Ireland for the most part as a farm dog, and um, um, so that's where it was developed for the most part. I think it was uh, first shown is in nineteen sixteen or something, and. Um, came to the States, I think it was recognized ni- around 1922 or 1924 in 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 the States mm-hmm. as a breed and was registered as a breed. I can't tell for sure where it came from. There mm-hmm. there's different Irish breeds like soft coat and terrier and uh, Irish terrier and caribou terrier, which some uh, sometimes in the caribou we can get the... Uh, I mean, they usually, they're all born black, and then they, at 18 months of age, they change color. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to change color anyway to the any different shades of gray. But sometimes we have in the litter, the puppies show up with, um, which kind of looks like almost like Airedale Terrier puppy with the black and tan markings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't happen very often. But those dogs usually, um, they become very light, like platinum color almost, and uh, by the age, you know, two years old. And uh, you almost don't see any more markings on them. So that, I guess, you know, the relation between the soft coat and the kitty blue, um, you can sometimes see that color pops up. Um, We even have some kitty blues, uh, I remember seeing pictures of them in the color of a soft coat and wooden terrier. Yeah, so they all, some, I guess there's some relationship there somewhere mm-hmm. back in the days. Right. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, originally it was an all-around farm dog, so they were expected um, to be, uh, to, to help, you know, herd sheep on the farm mm-hmm. or, um, eliminate any kind of, you know, uh, rodents around the farm. Or they were used in, I think in England, they were used um, to hunt budgers. Um, so they basically pretty, they're very people-oriented. They they were not meant to be a pack animal. Uh-huh. So they, because they're very attached to their owners, I find them, like mostly, they're not, they know not to be super friendly with other dogs. So, right. Um, but they very focused on the owners and, you know, on how to please them for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> um, came to stop too. But so 
you can basically use them for any kind of sport. And, you know, I don't know how many people hunt nowadays. They still can easily kill groundhog or, you know, stray cat. or So you have to, or obviously a rabbit, squirrel, or anything else they can get a hold of. So you need to, if you don't want them, that particular trait you need to watch because they can, I mean, I know plenty of dogs who can still they kill raccoons and foxes and oh, what's not. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that trait is still in the breed very much. It was not bred out by any means. So uh, all these, and they're very smart naturally and, you know, fun. And um, I, I find them pretty trainable if you find uh, the way to train mm-hmm. which suits them. Because it, they can be stubborn, yes, but um, they also very willing to do anything with the owners if the owner gets them excited enough about any particular sport or you know uh, yeah. activities. Um, so for that reason, I uh, they I think they can be trained for just about any sport which is available now, where you can get titles and you know or not to get titles and this breed, but yeah, they up to to do anything. And um, I mean, some of them more or less more trainable and some of them less trainable. Um, but I think if you find a way to excite the dog, then you can, you know, you can train just about for any discipline. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I do this mine, the one I have right now, she's a title in obedience, Raleigh, agility, barn hunt, um, dog diving. She just now started scent work and already got her uh, most two point two legs towards her first title. Um, cheek dog, farm dog, I mean, you name it, just that I'm pretty much running out of a uh, available titles for mm-hmm. <laughs> for this breed, um, but your fa- I would say your favorite is a barn hunt, obviously, because that involves critters, and that's probably most dearest for a kid- for any terrier, you know, to, to try and find a critter rather than let's say you know pro- uh, walk around you know next to on the heel command. It's not as as exciting for them as mm-hmm. running after a rat. Yeah, but, um, and so I, and I wouldn't, probably wouldn't push her into something because I know what is more exciting for her. So there are some sports like dog diving. She, she's done it. She received the title for it. But it's not your favorite thing to do. She likes to swim, but she doesn't really like to jump into water. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, I probably not going to, you know, try to push her into that direction if there's plenty of other opportunities for her to enjoy, you know, other sports. So, and, you know, sometimes I see people trying to push that um, dog, the dog they have into something they think is, you know, most exciting for them. Mm-hmm. And the dog can fail, but, you know, while they can instead see and find something the dog might, you know, be better at mm-hmm. and enjoy more and obviously be better at because it enjoys more. 
some other activities. So, I mean, there's so much varieties nowadays where you can try this and that. Mm-hmm. It's not just one discipline. So, yeah. Could you talk about like the uh, AKC standards and if there's a difference between the AKC and the FCI or? Um, I think it's pretty much uh, pretty much the same as far as um, like we don't have many disqualification. The the only disqualification is um, basically the dog being black after eighteen months of age because color is important color is in the in the standards so it needs to be seen so if a car if a dog is solid black after 18 months that you cannot show that dog until it shows some kind of color and some of them take a little longer some change color at three years old and so you have to you know have to wait till there's any color um other than that i don't think there's any i mean the American standard is uh, talks about you know it should be eighteen inches tall. Uh, we have sometimes it um, there's some varieties, but we don't have a disqualification over the size. Uh, and uh, it's it seems like on the showing the more taller rather than smaller dogs mm-hmm. are preferable for the shows because they look more showy and flashy. So there's 18, maybe 18, 19 inches tall um, males at the show rings. I mean, I personally prefer them smaller, but it's still in the standard from 17 and a half inches to 18 and a half, 19 inches is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, anything above 20 inches is, um, uh, I mean, not not ideal by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um, they should be square, obviously, and um, they have supposed to have a very nice reach and drive as they move in about the ring without not being bouncy, but just like, um, and um, they usually up-headed, that is just preferable to be up-headed because it's in the front of the carrier should be there, and the straight tail, um, nice straight top line, uh, and of course they we're looking a lot at the coat because that's what we you know what the breed is recognizable for. Um, so it should be wavy and uh, mostly we the the coat the structure of a coat is important because some we don't want them to look like a poodle coat where it's very wooly or cottony. Um, the woolly coat is very easy to groom because you can basically, it's very thick and you can sculpt it into anything, but it's not what the, what we, what the ideal coat is. It should be nice and wavy and silky to the touch and very soft. Um, so we, the wolf, it seems like for a while there were, um, coats which were very woolly, but I think in the last decade, Maybe um, it, it seems like breeders stepped away from that, and the coats now are much better. On the re- you, what you see on the ring is much, much better mm-hmm. than what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Because they, they were, you know, in the last whatever twenty years, probably they were, in, they were 
become more more and more imported dogs from Europe start coming uh, in Ireland and Russia and um, England and um, so the coats improved quite a bit mm-hmm. since since then which is very nice to see because you know I, I my dogs I prefer them to be on a much lighter side side than um, some remain dark through the all their life, some of them get very light by the age of two or three, and then by the age of six, they start turning black again. Mm-hmm. So by the end of their lives, they go back to black. And um, yeah, so, but it, you can't really, I mean, it's hard to predict for sure what it can be. You can breed light dog to a light dog, and you know, some will be light and some will remain very dark. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of, you know, not the call. You can't really predict the color, right. <laughs> unfortunately. Right. Yeah. I think it's like thirty-three pounds. Thirty-three pounds up to four. It can be anywhere from twenty-five pounds to forty. Forty pounds. Uh, I've had um, like my most most of my girls are thirty-three, thirty-six pounds. Uh, I've had one which was forty-five pounds, but she didn't look. Fat. She was just very massive, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but um, typically, yeah, it's probably like thirty-five pounds. It would be an average mm-hmm. size. Depends. Uh, well, you know, depends on the structure, like how much of a bone the dog has, and um, so I, I prefer my, mine to be on the more stocky side. Mm-hmm. Size, so you know, with a nice big full head and. Um, with lots of bones. I don't like them to be too elegant because mm-hmm. that, I mean, they're not supposed to be super elegant dogs. they more of a walking. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you look at them and you think, well, could, can that dog take out Badger or a big groundhog or not or a poon? Mm-hmm. So obviously it needs to be well built to, to be able to hunt those animals. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to, I mean, at this point, I don't only look at the structural, um, you know, close to perfection, but I also look how smart the dog is. And um, and the temperament is very important to me. So I would never intentionally breed to a dog who might be a big winner or, you know, structurally awesome. But uh, if I see any kind of aggression, um, I'm not going to go there because, I really, because for the most part, you know, um, I I certainly appreciate the dogs who show beautifully, who up on their toes and looking at other dogs and, you know, standing their ground. It's beautiful. But for the most part, the puppies I'm selling will be leaving these people who are not going to train them, you know, uh, any, any more than what's, you know, basic requirements for the puppies and dogs. So I don't want... Uh, temperament problems to those puppy buyers who are buying from me. So mm-hmm. for that for that reason, I need to look at the dogs who are stable and temperament, not necessarily. So there's no shyness. I definitely would not want them. Or, you know, anxious dogs are also not, I mean, I don't need that in my life. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm looking um, for the dog who has plenty of bone, who's uh, balanced, because I mean, I 
I do, I sculpt dog for a living, so I do, you know, ceramic sculptures. So I'm very aware of what the balance looks like, because basically, you know, if, um, in a certain type, I have, the type I like is to be, you know, not too, it needs to be square, but it also needs to be, um, you know, have plenty of neck, and the tail set needs to be a certain um, sit properly, so the whole dog looks balanced to me. Plus, it needs to have plenty of bone and uh, beautiful coat, and um, not just structural coat, but it's also the color. So there's color, you know, coming. Um, and um, but also, I mean, most of it is temperament, just so the dog is not shy and not over aggressive and. Uh, can look at other dogs with interest, but not without the desire to, you know, kill and eliminate uh, any any dogs around it. Because um, if I use them for sport, I obviously need a dog who can control itself in a situations where there are other dogs around it constantly. Um, so that's what I'm. So it's mind and body, and coat and movement. All together, that's what we're looking for. What I'm looking for, um, yeah, because I'm 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 not thinking only what you know, what I will have, because I know even you know um, I can train dogs. I mean, I can make something best out of a you know out of any puppy I can I have. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking about people who buy puppies from me um, to make their life easier, you know, with a, um, because after, sometimes we have an, um, in a breed ring, very hot, obviously very hot terriers who uh, you know, rumble and, you know, trying to go after another dog, other dogs. And like I said, it's totally fine and exciting on the ring, but um, you need to be disciplined enough to, to have a dog in your house and know how to train it mm -hmm. so yeah so those are things i'm thinking about right and when um you're um going to keep a puppy out of a litter mm -hmm. what specifically are you looking for for your own program well i i i only keep girls i don't keep boys anymore i mean i've never been attracted to keeping uh because um the boys uh, very affectionate. I don't know if that's in any other breed, but it's definitely in the Kerry Blues, where the girls are more independent and kind of like their own space, and that's what I like love about them. Mm -hmm. But the boys is going to be like ne attached next to you. You can't get up without the boy next. If if you have a boy next to you, it's going to get up also, and like, what are we doing now? So I, yeah, I mean, I personally just did too much for me. They always in my personal space. So I, I only keep girls for that reason because they just lay in, you know, and sleeping until I need them. And then, you know, if I tell them we're going to do something, they're going to do it. Um, so when I keep a puppy, uh, well, obviously I can tell, you know, structurally who I like the most and as far as the code and, um, uh, personality but uh what's interesting i've never kept in all i think in all my leaders i've never kept the pick 
to pick over a leader. It just never happens because it usually goes to somebody else who, you know, want to start the, their own breeding program or, you know, for a variety of reasons. Or I just never get my own pick of a litter. I always give it away or give them away for, I don't know why it's happening, but that's how it's always been. Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's like I had, well, actually two of my girls came from the litters where there was one girl and I didn't have any chance, you know, way to to choose from any. So I kept like this one, the one I have right now, she was the only puppy the girl in the litter. So I kept her. Um, but yeah, if uh, so, I'm kind of always get what's not, you know, kind of a leftover. I would say almost <laughs> in, in my what they keep, but they still uh, because you know uh, they all is in a pretty good, um, well well bred. So I know that even if it's maybe not my pickle leader, the the girl I keep and still have all the qualities I'm looking for. Maybe she's not as flashy as the one who would be picked, but uh, all the quality as far as physical, you know, abilities and mental abilities is there. So that's the one I keep because they can always improve from, you know, from her breeding her to the next suitable male I like. Uh, but, you know, it's it's never, it may be remaining the same as far as, um, uh, physical quality, but it never goes down, obviously. But um, so it, I, I'm not looking at it and as just as like needs to be the p- most perfect puppy out of a litter for me because I know I can bring the potential. You know, even if it's a second pick, it's probably be a, still be a shining, you know, example of a Kerry Blue once because you know the way I raise them. I mm. think. Right. Yeah, and um, I mean, I personally do, like, I, I feed the OA, I don't feed commercial food. I haven't been eating commercial food pretty much never. So I think, and I think raw feeding um, gives them ability to grow slow and grow into their full potential. So that's, I, I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I can see the muscle development in a raw fat dog compared to, you know, kibble fat, uh, I think that plays the role too. So maybe that's, you know, that's part of it. Okay, well, um, you know, uh, because I grew up in, I mean, in Russia, in Moscow, we didn't have a commercial dog food available when I was, you know, growing up. Um, it actually was not there until I probably almost left Russia. So I was not um, brought up with that whole you know, idea of a commercial food. There was always sort of a homemade kind of stew, which we were making out of whatever available ingredients <laughs> and fed to our dogs. So, uh, so when I first got my caribou here in the States in 1999, I started with um, kibo, uh, as was recommended by the breeder. And I think when she was a year old, um, I was told by that, that she needs her teeth to be cleaned. And I was very surprised because that never happened, you know, back in Russia. We didn't even think about cleaning dog teeth, so never thought there's a need for that. Um, 
So I did that as recommended. And then probably six months later, when I took her for another checkup, I was told that she may need her teeth to be cleaned again. And I'm like, oh my, what are you talking about? I can't, I can't believe, what is that? I mean, her teeth, I mean, she had some, obviously, those, those teeth stones, but uh, it was just very strange to me to, to that I need to clean the dog's teeth all the time because we never had that problem. So at that point, I think I uh, started looking and feeding something else. Plus, she always had some other, she was constantly either vomiting or had some, you know, pooping issues. They were, she was not in a top-notch health for what, you know, I thought she should. Uh, so at that point, I started looking into something else and came across raw feeding, and that made total sense to me because, you know, it's kind of like what we did back in Russia. Um, and it, it, it just made total sense to me because dogs are carnivores. They suppose, you know, they were made, made to eat raw bones and meat and organs and whole animals and, you know. So I I switched the same day, I think, I've heard of it. It just made enough sense to me that I'm like, okay, that I'm going to try that. And so I threw out the, you know, gave away to neighbors that bag of kibble and went and bought chicken, and that's how I started. That was back in 2001, 2000, and um, that's it. I never looked back. Um, so basically, I'm, I'm, there's different, I mean, right now, I think there's a commercial robo available, and so there's different variety of things people doing, but I stick to what they call prey model raw feeding. So it's basically any parts of um, animals, animals they can find and that's what they feed which is can be chicken rabbit denison um, pork beef basically whatever I can find on sale at the grocery store or mm -hmm. through hunter friends to you know and I have a freezer so if I see good sales on any kind of meat I'll stock up on that so um, I always have enough um, so I don't pay any more than maybe a dollar a pound for my, you know, to feed the dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's all human grade because it's just like you just go to the grocery store and buy chicken or turkey or, or pork, whatever is available. Uh, so it's, I know that the quality is good. I mean, you can go organic if some people want to. I personally don't look at it, you know, don't think about it too much because... I think raw, feed, raw food, you know, human-grade meat from the grocery store is still way above, step above of whatever commercial food might offer. Um, so I start when the puppies, and when I have a liter, I start about, depends on how many and how much milk the mother has, I'll start at probably four or five weeks introducing just a mixture of a, a raw yeah, so um, ground beef with uh, milk, mm -hmm. uh, and you know we have also available raw milk here in 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 Pennsylvania. At least you can buy it from the farmer. Uh, so I mix that, and as they start growing and start getting teeth teeth coming in, uh, then I go for the chicken quarters with bones, and then at first they just kind of strip the meat off the bones because, you know, puppy teeth can't go through the bones that much. 
and probably by the age of 10 weeks, they can pretty much go through the chicken quarter without any problems, bones and all. Um, and, um, and once they get the permanent teeth, then it's, I mean, the only, probably the only, um, bones I don't feed is any kind of beef bones because it's so dense and it's not eatable bone. Like the dog cannot really chew through the beef bone to mm-hmm. eat it. But so I stick with more, of, um, like pork bones are pretty easy for them to, to chew through it and digest. Um, chicken is very easy. I don't feed turkey a whole lot. I don't know. It just, I don't know why. It just, I have something against it for whatever reason. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, know why. <laughs> it's just, I think I fed tur- uh, lots of turkey to my one dog and she, I don't know, vomited or something, you know, she was not, didn't feel right after that. So I just, from that point, for some reason, I have something against turkey, so I don't feed it. Maybe because I don't like it myself either. So. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but, um, yeah, anything else is uh, good to go. It's just, um, like, my dogs receive usually a pound a day, so it's pretty much, if you buy those cheap chicken quarters on a tray, uh, each one is probably about a pound, so that's, I just, um, I don't have bowls to feed the dogs out of. I have a little towels on the floor and I put the chicken quarter on the floor mm-hmm. on the towel and that's how they eat. Um, and um, so it's about a pound a day for my guys. Mm-hmm. It can be, and I don't have any specific, uh, I don't weigh the food or, you know, I don't count anything. It's just if the dog gets a little fat, then I cut on the food or I can skip like two meals or, you know, here and there. Mm-hmm. Or if it gets too skinny, then obviously I add more food to, or add more fat or like chicken with skin or chicken without taking the skin off will make it, you know, more lean. So it's all kind of, I, I don't, <clears throat> I don't need to balance it every day. I can balance it over a week or months. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of because the, the way, you know, if an animal, if the dog would hunt an animal out, you know, out in the wild, he would not get the same part every day. He may be a big animal, it can be small animal. So we, those people who feed the same way as I do, we just kind of balance over time, not necessarily in one day. Just like, you know, humans, we don't eat balanced diet every single day. It might be, you know, one nutrient this today and another one tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So that's how I do the same with the dogs. And, um, yeah, so I don't use any kind of supplements or, um, yeah, any kind of anything other than what the animal, the prey animal would provide. I, I feed lots of organs and like kidney and, um, liver and heart. All. Um, so I'm trying to find it. Uh, whole animals, if I can, like whole rabbit with a whole, you know, organs still in it. So that way I know it provides everything the dog needs. But if if I don't have it, then I feed parts until I find something else. Yeah, and that's how, for that reason, I never need to um, worry about the teeth. Like my now 11 and a, well, almost 12 year old, I have the old one, my... 
she never had her teeth cleaned and they're in perfect shape. There's nothing on them. They, I mean, they kind of yellowish now because of the age, but there's nothing. She never needed them to be brushed or cleaned in any way. And uh, I never had any kind of those uh, anal glands problem mm-hmm. like I see people need to express them because if the dog, if she, they eat lots of bones, then the stool is pretty hard. So it expresses naturally the anal glands. So I don't have to worry about that. And um, they don't have, you know, there's, they're just, they don't lose teeth. How many dogs, all the dogs have to pull teeth, you know, one or five or at the time. And I don't have that because of the, the way I feed, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus there are a lot less poop and I don't have to, you know, it decompose. It's, I mean, I usually walk my dogs, so I don't have them in the yard pooping. But even if they do, it decomposes easily. It doesn't sit there like most you know, piles of cable fat mm-hmm. for you, God knows how long. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about the average lifespan of a carry blue? Um, well, I think it's, well, uh, it's usually like 12 years, pretty much average. There are plenty of them who live to be 15, 14, 15. Uh, but there's also... Uh, like cancer starts showing up mm-hmm. in them. So if the dog doesn't die of cancer relatively young, then it can seems to be going for, you know, for a while. Um, so, it, yeah, it's it, it, 12, 12 years would be probably mm-hmm. average. So in the last probably 10 years, there were quite, um, there were different uh, genetic diseases which were discovered and now have a test for so we can test for them and eliminate. Like there was that uh, DEM where the um, the same disease, like German Shepherds, some have them and some larger breeds. But mm-hmm. the Kerry Blues also have that gene, and where the the, um, the back legs get paralyzed. And uh, but now there's a test for that. So uh, you know we all pretty much. I, I think most. All, all the breeders uh, test nowadays, and so you can choose, you know, you, you know if your dog has that gene, so you don't breed to the dog. There can be carriers, which, so if you breed both two carriers, then you can produce puppies who will have the both genes, and then they can develop the disease. So we eliminate, you know, that pretty much eliminated because through the test and all we just have to carriers who cannot be, you know, who, who may carry the gene, but they don't actually get the full disease. Um, and there's some other, uh, those genetic diseases pretty much taken care of. And um, the hips, I mean, everybody check hips and elbows, but it's not, I mean, I think I've only heard of one Kitty Blue which had hips problems, and that was, I mean, that's something I've, really never heard of in the breed. I'm forever thankful for the my the breeder I got my first Kerry Blue here in the States first. Uh, her name is Barbara Morningstar. And you know, back in ninety nine it wasn't that you know, you can't just really get on Google and find anything available. So it was a lot of uh phone calls mm-hmm. through different people and there's so many breeders and 
in my breed who are so protective of, of this breed that they wouldn't, unless you can call them and tell them who recommended you, they don't even want to talk to you because they're saying, you know, we, we don't know who you are. We're not going to even talk to you about puppies, possibility of getting a puppy. So it took me some calling, and of course I didn't know anybody in the breed. Um, it probably took me whatever six months trying to find somebody with the puppies. And then finally I called Barbara, and she happened to have a bitch available. And she just said, you know, come over. And so so we drove and, you know, and she decided that, you know, I'm, I'm good enough to sell a puppy to. <laughs> and basically she was guiding me through the, through my first couple years. And especially since I started getting involved in the show and she's the one who, you know, groomed my dog for me because I didn't know what I'm doing at all and trying to explain all the in and outs about dog showing because, you know, I was totally clueless. And um, so I'm forever thankful for your guidance through that whole, you know, getting established in the breed. And um, and then she, as as she was the one, when I brought the first litter here, she was, um, she provided the mail and she kind of guided me through that, even though I already had experience with welcome leaders back in Moscow, but uh, this one was uh, more of a, you know, official show dog. So um, she provided the mail and she uh, sent a um, couple of her friends, breeders, to look at the puppies, to evaluate them, to give me some ideas of, you know, who... I mean, I, I didn't have any problems keeping because I only had one bitch in that litter, so I kept her, so I didn't mm -hmm. have any, you know, I, uh, once again, I didn't have any choice. And, um, but at least they looked through the nails and decided who's going where and all that. So Barbara was the one who uh, was my most, you know, mentor in, in the breed here uh, when I just started. And then... Um, as I start showing, then I just by looking, you know, making friends, um, not necessarily maybe even people who've been in a breed for a long time, but just looking at dogs in the in a, in the ring and um, finally developing, the, uh, you know, what an eye for the breed. So finally recognizing the types and you know what's more my preferred type compared to other types available out there. Um, so yeah, it, it it I mean I can I'm trying to and I will always getting help in my first those first years showing there were people around the ring who were always very helpful. I am forever thankful for that because I remember at my show first show I went and Barbara was not able to come, so it was just me and my dog and um you know and uh, I arrived, and I didn't even know where to set up. And and there were people around the Kerry Blue Rings who, um, Carol and Bill Courtney, um, who old time breeders, and they um, helped me. And they just you know put my table up and put my dog on it and start brushing and telling me what you know what you need to touch up. And 
you know, what to do because I couldn't, at that point, I, my knees were shaking so bad I didn't know if I should hold my dog or my knees because I, mm-hmm. you know, I was so scared of the whole situation there. But, um, so they basically just, you know, brushed my dog, somewhat regroomed my dog and gave me the leash and pushed me into the ring and actually went and took breed over some known dogs somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was quite an experience. But yeah, so uh, I have to say our community of Kerry Blue Carriers are very helpful for all newcomers. There's no, um, I mean, I, I have heard of some dramas here and there, but for the most part, if you're new and around the ring and you ask for help, there's tons of people who will be willing to help and give you all the you know, tips on training and um, grooming because, you know, in this breed, grooming is pretty important Mm -hmm. um, because they can definitely spoil or beautify the look of your dog no matter even if it's, you know, whatever's underneath that here, you can certainly change the outlook quite a bit with just grooming itself. So, yeah, there's, I mean, it's always been, I made wonderful friends over the years and um it's always just helpful people trying to we're all in it together and i i never had any kind of problems everybody trying to help the newcomers and we're all you know obviously look at exchange the ideas and you know our opinions mm-hmm. <laughs> of you know improvement of a dog but um even from the years what, uh, you know, I started in 2001, I think, showing. And I have to say that our quality of the dogs, I think, quite improved quite a bit at them since then. Because this is non-shading breed, right? Um, so this is something I absolutely love about this breed always. Because, you know, so I go to the dog shows and trials and come out covered in hair and I'm, oh my God, Thank God I don't have that at home. <laughs> I mean, there's no dog here in my house, which is fantastic. Um, so this is a, uh, so I wash them maybe once or two weeks or so. And that's, um, and since I groom myself, I don't really, uh, I, we usually recommend about um, every six weeks the dog needs to be groomed. Uh, but, you know, I don't really set six weeks. It can be whenever I decide on it. So I don't keep them shaved or anything, um, which is another option if they're not shown. You can always just keep them very short and mm-hmm. um, not worry about, you know, that whole grooming situation. But I like to keep them in a, in a carry shape, even if they, you know, all, like my old one, she still, I maintain her shape. I mean, I'm not that precise about, you know, to keep her in a top-notch cold condition, but she still looks like a caribou and not some shaved, whatever, poodle. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but, um, yeah, and um, the way I just, if anything, I just groom the face a little different from, for my, the one who competes a lot, because, or people who still prefer to have very long facial hair, they braid the fall so the dog or braid or just put a ponytail so they're on a fall of a, 
of a dog so they can see, you know, if they jump in agility, obviously they need to see where they're going. With me, I just basically put, uh, get your face very wet right before we go so, you know, she can easily see through the wet hair. So I don't, you know, worry too much about it. But in general, again, like I said, I just washed once in two weeks and that's when I brush them. I don't brush them every day, like, um, which is recommended for the most part for pet people, you know, people who buy puppy from them. For me and anybody else, we usually say you need to brush your dog every day, which um, I personally don't do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I Like I said, when I, right, because when I uh, wash them and uh, blow dry the legs, it's much easier for me to brush that out at that point mm-hmm. rather than trying to brush through dirty hair every day. Right. Um, yeah, so, and then I groom just when I, you know, I feel there's a need for that. But I usually maintain them because you never, like, at some point, right now I'm actually, um, start, just started recently to compete in a grooming competition. So I need to keep my dog in a, you know, the coat needs to be in a good shape too, because especially now there's no, there's they just occasionally uh, pop up on um, online. The competition, it just, you know, crosses my timeline on Facebook and they say, no, there's a competition right now starting if you, you know, you groom the dog and you send pictures in and all that. So she needs to be in a good shape so I can at any point just, you know, wash her, brush her and possibly groom her for competition. <laughs> so for that reason, I don't, um, you know, shave or do anything drastic with your coat, and I keep her in a good, good shape. Right. Yeah. But um, I mean, most uh, I guess the pet people, if they just um, maintain it enough, if you keep on going to the groomer every six weeks, then the dog should be in a good shape, um, unless you know and. Um, well, the, in the fall, there are lots of those seeds you can, they, they can easily pick up lots of seeds in their coat if they're out in the, you know, in the field or in the, in the, in the woods someplace. So for that reason, you can probably, should probably brush, you know, if there's some kind of tangled. But for the most part, I find it just as easy to wash once a week, uh, once in two weeks and brush them. I mean, I, I never had any problems with that. It's not a couch potato breed where you can just sit on the couch and expect them to sit next to you and, you know, do nothing because they will, uh, if you're not doing something with them, they will find something to do and you may not like the activity they pick up. <laughs> so uh, we get up in the morning, we go for a walk for an hour. I come back, I might train them train the young one for about 10 minutes at best and then they go you know and then they sleep till evening where we go for a walk again that's pretty much they schedule every day unless there's a trial or you know something else going on when you get a puppy like the first year is the most important year and even the first six months that's what i always tell people you can spend six months being the best of the best or the best trainer and dog person or if you let it go 
till later, then you probably will be correcting for the rest of a dog's life. You'll be correcting the mistakes you made, uh, you know, the dog. If you let the dog do stupid things in the first six months, you'll be correcting it for the next 15 years. Or you can put all your efforts, best efforts in the first six to eight months mm-hmm. to make sure that you're raising the dog with manners and, you know, good skills. And then it, the rest of the life will be much easier for you. So when I get the, you know, when is the next puppy, it be, I'm just spending every possible, you know, time that I have. I'll do something with a dog just so, you know, I know that it's raised properly and not doing anything, not left on its own to do some crazy things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I believe in just that training for the first few months. I mean, it's much easier to to raise them right rather than trying to fix some things which will be much harder to fix when they two-year-old. Mm-hmm. But I always take them with me everywhere I go. Like, if, you know, just so they get used to right in a car. They're basically in a car every day. Uh, to any kind of, and if I go to a trial with my older one, the puppy comes with me, so it gets exposed to other dogs, um, to longer sitting in the car waiting at the trial, to, you know, being able to eat while it's on the road. If we go to the shows for four days and stay in a hotel, so all these, uh, it's not necessary, in, you know, going for a walk and meeting all the people on the walks, that's, that's what I do. I, I don't take them to a dog park or anything like that. that that's a no. Um, so they exposed to variety of dogs and people, but under my supervision and not on their own terms. It's on my terms, all the, you know, what they exposed to. How do they handle the, the hotter weather? Yeah, they're not, I can't say they're a fan of it at all. Um, but it's also, I think it depends on the dog. Like my older one, she doesn't like to be, like she basically hibernates from like mid-June to end of August. She kind of like very low and uh, <laughs> her life is just basically sleeping and eating at that point. She does not like that heat. And it, it's probably also when she become probably started when she was about nine, eight years old, that's when it started to be more noticeable that she really, really does not like humidity. Up to that point, she was a, she was fine. I don't remember any kind of issues with her. And my young one doesn't, I mean, she actually fine with any kind of temperature. It's, she, they obviously prefer the colder weather. Mm-hmm. But um, in the so in the summer we do lots of swimming and you know those activities where it's, uh, they they be able to stay cool even if it's very hot outside. Obviously, I'm not taking them for a walk in the middle of in August in the mid- midday or anything. They once again they usually walk in the early in the morning or late at night, and all the training is done. Uh, in those hours rather than in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's swimming, then we can go and, you know, splash around in a creek someplace. Um, and, you know, most dog sports nowadays, there are plenty of spaces which is where it's done inside with, you know, perfect air conditioner and or heat. Or, so, 
so it's it's not a big deal anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, generally they not keep logging dogs. That's for sure. They like right now when it uh, it gets older in the morning, that's when I can see them start playing again a lot more and just being more active all together on the walk. Um, yeah, there's a definitely a big difference between the summer and the fall. Or, and actually, if it's a, you know, minus 20 degrees plus the wind chill factor, that's what, that's when they walk for three hours instead of an hour. Huh. <laughs> and I'm usually, you know, frozen by the end of uh, those walks, but that's when um, they much prefer when it's nice and windy and cold as it can be. That's their best situation for them <laughs> despite the fact that they don't look like they have that much of it i mean the cold because there's no undercoat so it looks like they should be cold but they definitely not <laughs> awesome yeah